Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. And I have a special offer for Americano listeners. If you want to subscribe to the Spectator's US edition, which is brilliant, by the way, I edit it, you can go to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and take advantage of our special Americano offer. If you insert the code Americano in capital letters like Donald Trump on Twitter, you will get 5% off. Please do so. I'm joined today by Michael Oslin, who is a fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and the author of Asia's New Geopolitics, which is out now, isn't it, Michael? Uh, just about to be out. Just about to be out. Okay, well, But you can pre-order it, yes. Well, I got a taste of its brilliance in your piece yesterday for Real Clear Politics, saying that uh, the coronavirus crisis was a turning point for China. And it also seems to me that it may well be a a turning point, perhaps even quite a frightening turning point in the relationship between China and America. Would you say that's the case? I think it is. I think it's also, you know, history can be ironic in these ways. We've been building up to a a real reckoning uh, between China and the United States. I think uh, the, the Trump administration policies have shown that, but I think it would have happened under any U.S. president to one degree or another. But this has all been supercharged and, and sort of pushed into a completely different dimension by coronavirus, by the botched response of the, the Communist Party and the Chinese government, by their attempts to cover it up, now by their attempts to shift blame and, and even blame the United States for the virus. I, I really think that, unfortunately, this is a turning point and not for the better. Well, certainly there seems to be very fierce information war has already broken out over corona. I mean... As far as China is making out, it's got a handle on the crisis, but nobody outside of China seems to believe that. What what evidence do we have for not believing the Chinese when they say that you know they're getting it under control? Well, I think there's there's probably three types of evidence. The first is the long run of not being able to trust Chinese statistics or Chinese government pronouncements uh, that they are they're not reliable. At the best, they put lipstick on a pig, and at the worst, what they do is is really just flat out completely misrepresent what's going on. So we have years of of that on on economic issues and health issues and environmental issues. That's number one, is why suddenly would they be telling the truth? Number two... Uh, is that we are getting, we're still getting evidence, uh, and you can put together pieces of information. They're saying they're getting new infections. These supposedly are coming from abroad, but quite honestly, given the pandemic that's happened, who's going to China right now? So I think there's the likelihood that they're having reinfections, second waves, which they're looking at, by the way, in other parts of Asia, uh, and they're blaming others for it. There was some leaked video that I uh, I linked to in my piece about continuing long lines at hospitals. So the truth is we just we just don't know. And because they've shut down and, and controlled so much of social media, it's much harder to get information than it used to be. And then third is the fact that we know that they are still talking uh, about that they're, they're not fully over this yet. They've you know announced we have no new uh, indigenous infections over the past day in Wuhan. But if you if you parse what they're saying, I mean, there is still 
uh, undoubtedly something happening within the country. The fact that uh, so many of the restrictions have not been lifted, the fact that they haven't lifted things on the control over social media and the like, I, I think just lends us to believe that there's more going on there, unfortunately, than we'll, we'll really find out. And so state propaganda seems to be suggesting now that, I mean, I've seen that some reports that now coming from Chinese official sources, that Chinese people are now coming back from the West to China because uh, they're so worried about how badly uh, the West is handling it compared to China, which has had this um, supposedly amazingly strong response. Would that be a a sort of very Beijing way of PRing it to say, you know, we got it under control now you guys have given it back to us. So to try and sort of deflect blame for the problem. Yeah, Freddie, I mean, it's more than PR, it's propaganda. Yeah. And look, you're seeing that in major U.S. newspapers, unfortunately. There, there, were, there have been big articles about that. I feel safer in China. You know, look, what we're facing is a propaganda war. And it's a propaganda war being waged by the Communist Party and by the government of China because the world never should have been exposed to coronavirus. The Communist Party, the government, the party state covered it up. Uh, They knew about it at least in December, probably November. They covered it up. They didn't warn their own citizens. They didn't warn the world. They didn't allow in the types of medical uh, expert teams that you would need in order to identify what this epidemic was and to curb it. And so now they're trying to shift blame. And they're trying to shift blame because they know that the world, if it really, you know, gets over its own threats from the pandemic, but begins to focus on why this happened and how it happened, then the vaunted China model of governance will be called into question. Instead, what they want is for people to say, look, China's governance model is much better than ours. They were able to control the virus. Mm. The fact is the the Wuhan flu, the Wuhan virus started in China, and it spread because of Chinese incompetence or negligence. And, and both. Uh, so this is a propaganda war, and we can't let them win at telling us both how to think about it, but also to praise a governance system that caused it in the first place. And do you think that the, the whole, there's now a sort of fatuous row going on about whether it's racist or not, to call it the Chinese virus, the Wuhan flu, you know, all these different terms. That is obviously a complete waste of time when there's much more important issues. There are theories that this is what they call uh, weaponizing wokeness, which is a kind of propaganda tool in itself, that Chinese propaganda is trying to imply that any insinuation that China is to blame is somehow racist. Do you think that's a Chinese strategy or do you think that's just our political correctness sort of turning over itself? No, it's both, but but it's absolutely a strategy. And it's a American wokeness, you know, pandering to that, unfortunately. Look, for centuries, scientists have named diseases from where they were discovered or first emerged. Uh, We talk about the Spanish flu, which didn't even emerge in Spain, which was a century ago. We talk about the Ebola virus from the Ebola River region in uh, in, uh, what was then, uh, uh, was now the Democratic Republic of Congo. We talk about West Nile virus from the West Nile region in Uganda, uh, Lyme disease from Lyme, Connecticut. It's, mm. it's a, a sheer hypocrisy and a complete double standard on the part of the Chinese to say that it's racist to call this the Wuhan flu. We've been doing that for centuries. And by the way, if you want to go and, and try to read about the pandemic disease that has been destroying millions upon millions, actually tens of millions of Chinese pig uh, stocks, you know, the, the, the pork stocks, well, you go onto Chinese sites and they will talk about the African swine fever. Yeah. 
So they do the exact same thing. When the Chinese stop calling it African swine fever, we can stop calling it the Wuhan flu. But I think it's important. You're right. There's more important things, which is to defeat the Wuhan flu, defeat the pandemic, get us all back to a a safe spot in all of our societies. But this is actually quite important. China is telling us how to think. It's forcing us to self-censor, and we should not stand for it. And China, which, again, calls the African swine fever, you know, basically stigmatizing an entire continent, should not be allowed to get away with rewriting history and having been treated differently from everybody else. It's interesting, isn't it? If you think about the amount of talk there's been in the last few years about Russian disinformation and Russian bots and Russian interference in elections. And just on the information side of things, I mean, we have been focusing on a malevolent actor, no doubt, in many ways. And that is that is Russia, that is Putin's government. But we've been ignoring this, but it's a relatively small malevolent actor. And we've been ignoring this monstrous information war that's been waged by China for the last few years. Is, Is that a fair analysis? You're spot on. I mean, the scale of what China is doing and and more importantly, the way in which it abets a much larger, much more influential in many ways, a much more pernicious actor on the world stage is, you know, puts Russia into the shade. And so we have now woken up to to actually use a good (laughs) a good use of the term woke. uh, We've woken up to uh, this just absolutely unparalleled influence campaign which is a propaganda campaign that China's been waging uh, through the Confucius Institutes on our college and university campuses, through outlets of the state such as CCTV, uh, obviously through manipulating the web, but what also we we have now discovered in in our country uh, through the Thousand Talents program, which has suborned U.S. academics and the like, through what uh, Europe has done actually a much better job of, of charting this than we have, what is called elite capture, which is basically forging links between the, 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 the Leninist party state in China and elites around the world, whether it's it's through visits and, and direct aid or, or whatever it is, so that they become uh, positive icons of, of spreading the word about how important China is. All of this, Freddie, it's exactly what you point out. It is a massive disinformation campaign, influence campaign, to get the world to ignore China's problems, to ignore China's predations, and to treat it differently, to to give it a pass on its bad governance, on its lax public health, on its intimidation of other countries, on its debt trap diplomacy, and on and on. Luckily, I think we've we've begun to turn the corner on this. Uh, Lots of good studies, some done at my institution, the Hoover Institution, but at lots of places have finally you know, poured sunshine as a disinfectant onto this. But what you see right now, right today with the Wuhan virus is a just an absolutely relentless Chinese propaganda campaign to shift attention and blame away from China and onto the United States and other countries. And there are a lot of, I mean, we've got to be careful because we can get into legally difficult territory, but there are a lot of uh, media companies, uh, legacy media companies, new media companies who are very dependent on large injections of of Chinese money, of Beijing money, to survive. And so therefore, reporting straight on China's position in the world, what China's doing in the world, is quite hard for them to do. We know we saw with Michael Bloomberg in his candidacy, he came under fire quite quickly for having possibly, for Bloomberg, his media empire, 
possibly having been a little bit soft on China in various areas. You're absolutely right. Uh, And there's no question. I mean, Bloomberg himself would go out and talk about how, you know, he would praise the Chinese communist leadership. He would talk about how effective they are and when what good leaders they are. I will tell you, since I guess you're right, maybe we're on legally, unfortunately, legally perilous ground. I will not name the outlet, but I was booted off an outlet that I, I had contributed to on on occasion, along with a number of others who were extremely hard on China. Uh, and I didn't put two and two together until someone else contacted me and said, yeah, look at all the, the hard China people who've been taken off of here. And, and it's because uh, apparently part of the company was bought by a, a Chinese company, a stake. I, I don't know if that's the case, but certainly these are things that we see happening. But, you know, it's even more above board, so to speak, Freddie. Look at what happened this past week with the American reporters for the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Washington Post, who have all been booted out of China or will be booted out of China. China is attempting to control the narrative. This sense that we've had for 20, 30 years of a, of a China that was be, you know, beginning to open up and reform under Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin, that is completely gone under Xi Jinping and under his predecessor, Hu Jintao. Hard authoritarianism has made its return in China. Control of information has made its return. We just need to be aware of that. We need to not trust without verifying. We need to not take them at their word. And we certainly shouldn't allow them to force us into a double standard where we don't call what's happening what's happening because because we're afraid for some reason of China. Well one one thing that it's quite hard to for people to get their heads around is is the extent to which Chinese influence can control not just media organizations but you know that well it seems that the World Health Organization has handled this crisis pretty badly so far. I think one can say that without sounding conspiratorial and that they seem to have been won over by by China's arguments pretty early on. Absolutely. Uh, now, I, it's hard to find. I and and I, you know, I among others should have done the, the the homework to see what degree of the WHO's funding comes from China. But the fact that the WHO was repeating unverified Chinese claims back in uh, January that there was no human to human transmission of this virus. Number one. Number two. The fact that the WHO refused to declare a pandemic. Its director general refused to declare a pandemic for months. Number three, that that same director general praised China uh, for being so effective and keeping us safe and buying us time. I mean, this is absolute poppycock. It is risible. And there, there should be a major accounting of the World Health Organization, whether it's fully in China's pocket, whether they were intimidated, who knows? And by the way, this is the same World Health Organization that would not let Taiwan into it, undoubtedly be due to Chinese pressure. No one else was was arguing that Taiwan shouldn't be a part of it in the midst of a global pandemic. I mean, this is it is absolutely what we see when China is able to gain elite capture and control institutions. It controls four different UN bodies more than any other country, and it is using them in order to intimidate its its political enemies and protect itself. This this is, again, what you started off with. This should be a turning point in the world's recognition of China as a bad actor. What we all thought, Freddie, is that we'd bring it into the world community, we'd get it into the UN and the World Trade Organization and give it these directorships, and it would 
uh, imbibe and adopt the norms that that inspired these organizations in the first place, even though they aren't perfect. But instead, what we see is China suborning them and corrupting them. But I mean, it may be that the corona crisis is something that China cannot spin and propagandize its way out of. I mean, we saw in the in the first weeks when of of the of the crisis really sort of breaking out in Wuhan, we did see you know there were sort of murmurings of discontent on Chinese social media. It was sort of picked up by people who spot these things, and you know if Beijing is 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 sort of conducting a huge propaganda effort in the face of an obvious truth that the crisis isn't under control they're going to possibly face a domestic unraveling. Well, that that's clearly the biggest fear. Look, when when this broke out, this was not uh, the primary concern of the the party state was not to 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 de- defeat the virus, it was to control social media. Mm. It was to threaten whistleblowers like Dr. Li Wenlong who died from this trying to tell the world what was happening. Yes. Uh it, it was to basically put them under house arrest and to threaten them. They understood that because they had botched this and they they didn't understand what was happening or how to control it, that this was a repeat of the 2003 SARS crisis, which which deeply harmed the legitimacy of the party. And in fact, made the party fear that it that its its future was was not assured, uh, which is, in fact, why you see Xi Jinping as the head of the party now, because he he was brought in and in, in essence to shape up the party and get it back into control over society. Mm. So this is absolutely what they were focused on. Now, they unfortunately, I think they're doing a pretty good job. No one calls it the Wuhan flu. We all call it COVID-19 or some other name. A lot of people are focusing on the failures around Europe and the United States, which legitimately you should be concerned about, as opposed to saying, well, you know what, if China had acted on this in November or December, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't face this this problem because it would have been contained. They are doing everything they can to shift the blame and the attention. And unfortunately, I think that they're successful. I mean, our economy right now is 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 cratering because of this, even though the death rates from this remain far lower than tuberculosis or far lower from the uh, the average annual flu. We have bought into a hysteria that somehow China has exported from its shores to ours. Let me play authoritarian's advocate with you briefly and say that everything you say makes sense, but it's also perhaps, in a way, a kind of American propaganda against China, in that um, China is obviously a threat to America. It's, it's the emergent superpower. Americans are anxious about that rise and increasingly have a tendency to portray Beijing as, as all evil and sort of demonic on the world stage. Well, I would just say that, unfortunately, it's something China's brought on itself. What the United States actually has done in the past 40 years has been everything in its power to bend over backwards, to engage with China and integrate it into the world economic and political system. Uh, And what it has reaped from that is a China that is uh, aggressive, that has stolen untold amounts of intellectual property, untold amounts of personal information from individuals in the United States, myself included. I'm one of those who got those letters saying your information has been compromised. We have been treated completely unfairly in the sense of no reciprocity. We allow 300,000 Chinese students into the United States every year, and we can't get our students into their top universities or or top labs except under uh, highly controlled 
situations. We are not able to have uh, equal media access. Uh, we're not able to get equal access to government officials. So the, the point is, China did not embrace the spirit of the age that the United States for 40 years since Kissinger and Nixon and Carter and Brzezinski tried to bring it into the world and instead continually posed itself as as an opponent of the United States, you know, building up a military that was uh, designed specifically to target the United States, which was the, the, the military keeping open the world's airways and waterways, working to undermine the U.S. and in international organizations, and, and of course set up alternative organizations. And some of these are things that states do, but the American people, the American government, finally has woken up to the ways in which China has abused our trust, taken advantage of us, and just is acting in a competitor way. And that's, you know what, to some degree, that's fine. I mean, as, as long as you're aware of it, and you don't fool yourself into the, the nature of this other country, uh, whether you want to call it an adversary or a competitor, or, or whatever, I, I'm worried as well that Americans call it an enemy. Um, this is not the China that we wanted it's not the China that we, we worked so hard to integrate into the world. But all of these specific choices were taken by Beijing, right, by the Chinese mm. communist government. We didn't ask them to steal our information. We didn't ask them to steal our intellectual property. We didn't ask them to build a military that harasses ships in the South China Sea and builds bases. These are all their choices. So at some point, you have to lay aside your hopes and your expectations and deal with reality. We've finally been mugged by the Chinese reality. That's what President Trump was trying to alter and to change. And now coronavirus, sorry, the Wuhan virus, is just something that has taken it to a, the next level. Academics talk a lot about the Thucydides trap, Thucydidean trap, and that you know you cannot have two you cannot have an emerging superpower without a war and that all sort of diplomatic efforts the last two decades have been dedicated towards making sure this doesn't happen with China and America. But it feels a little bit sometimes at the moment as though that trap is now being sprung. I mean, do you feel kind of some sort of conflict between China and America is inevitable? No, I don't. I don't think it, I think it misreads history. I don't think it's inevitable. I think it misreads Thucydides. But more specifically, it is the fact is that we have done everything we can to abet China's rise. We, for uh, years, have ignored its cyber predations. We have, we have, until President Trump started trying to do something about it, we never held anyone in China responsible and instead listened to their outright lies that they would curb cyber espionage. We did nothing when it built islands in the South China Sea intimidated Taiwan uh, and began to shrink Taiwan's international space. We, we have done everything we can not to go to war with China. And I, I, you know, as a historian, I don't believe war is inevitable at all. Uh, what you see is a China abusing the system into which it was brought and abusing the access it's been given and, and in many ways the wealth that it has created because of this system and the United States that continually backs down. I don't think the United States is going to go to war. What worries me is an accident. What worries me is a miscalculation on the part of the Chinese. Something like what happened in 2001 when their, uh, one of their fighter pilots crashed into one of our planes and, and brought it down over the South China Sea. Um, in fact, in that book that you mentioned at the top of the podcast, I have a, the final chapter is actually a future war scenario, the U.S.-China War of 2025, a future history that looks at how accidents 
can coalesce to cause to cause an outbreak. But the idea that we are fated to fight with China is wrong. More importantly, what that argument shades into is accommodation mm. in ways to avoid protecting your own interests. You must protect your own interests. And we should have done it a long time ago when China was weaker and, and, and less assured of its position in the world. We could have helped shape its action so that it did become the type of responsible stakeholder that we all wanted. But now to say that, well, look, if you continue to push against China, you're going to have a war. Well, naturally, for a, a risk-averse status quo power, that leads you to, to accommodate, if not appease. And we don't want to go down that route either. Well, let me ask you lastly about the presidential election in America this year, because almost nobody's thinking about it at the moment, really, because everything's so blown out the water. But the only thing that people are saying about it is this is terrible for Trump and that everything was looking so good for Trump. But now the economy is you know, in, in much worse shape than it was. All the stock market gains have been wiped out. And Trump suddenly looks very vulnerable in a way he didn't look about two months ago. I think there's something to argue against that might be to say that actually the more that people become aware of China's sort of malevolence on on the information war here and the sense that China is to blame here, we don't want to get into sort of, you know, too too vicious accusations of blame. These things have happened. But the, the fact that Trump has historically been the guy who stood up to China on trade and whatever might, and he's already you know, tweeting about the Chinese virus quite a lot, might actually play to play in his favour in the election, I'd say, especially when you look at Biden, who has some record of corruption with China. Yeah, well, I, I think, right, for, for Biden, he has a very weak record on China. Of course, they'll spin it as, as not, but it, it's extremely weak, and he discounts it, talks about uh, they're good guys or whatever, you know, stuff he says. So I think that that's clearly going to be a point for the campaign uh, but look, U.S. presidents unfortunately get blamed for bad things. They also usually get credit for good things. And so the fact that this economy, which is still fundamentally sound here, which was at record highs just a month ago, is has now succumbed to herd panic, the president's going to get blamed for it, unfortunately. I, you know, if it works its way through and by, you know, late summer and early fall where everyone is... Uh, over it and forgotten it, then I think, number one, the fundamentals are that the economy should come roaring back because there's there's no serious reason why uh, it should be slowed down. I mean, we have, we've dug a deep hole over the past month, and so it's going to take a little bit to get out of it, but the fundamentals are sound. And secondly, once the panic is passed, as you point out, there should be some time for people to sit back and look a little bit more dispassionately at what happened. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I mean, the United States needs to be better in protecting itself. We should not be dependent on China for our medicines. We should not be dependent on China for the masks and the medical equipment we need. I think we need government to step in at this point and create strategic reserves, as we have a strategic petroleum reserve, but we need a strategic medicine reserve, and we need a strategic mask reserve. So there's a lot of lessons that can be learned, but as the panic subsides, then I think people should be looking carefully and critically at China's role, which is why China is trying to rewrite history now. But if we do that, then I think that the blame that would be apportioned to President Trump or Prime Minister Johnson or President Macron or anyone else should be put into a context in which China did not share with the world the information that we needed early on to control this. And because we didn't fully understand it, there was delayed action here. Now, Everyone's responsible here for their own 
ultimate responses, but we would have done a lot better if China had been honest. I've heard people talk about reparations. You don't think that that when this is all over, the Chinese will have to pay, should have to pay reparations to the rest of the world for the crisis. Do you think that's a a dangerous argument, a bad argument? I haven't heard that. I don't. I don't really see how it would work. I think you know once you start that, then they'll claim reparations for everything else. But I mean, honestly, you know, thousands of people have needlessly died, both in China and outside of China. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure how you get reparations for that. I, I think this needs to be one of those very dark episodes in history, but one that we learn from. And we learn, number one, that the that there are risks associated with unlimited globalization, right? If you have unlimited openness, people can hop on airplanes to go wherever they want, whenever they want. If you are too open to supply chain disruption, things like that, then you should be now reconsidering some some limits on globalization, not that you want to tear up the entire post-World War II economic and trading architecture, but rather that you need to think, well, how do we protect ourselves in, in certain cases? What should we do better next time? First of all, we're, pro- we're going to get a vaccine at some point for this, right? Mm. And it won't be a perfect vaccine. None of them are, but we'll have a vaccine. But I don't think the world's going to wait next time when we hear about something happening in China as soon as we do, and hopefully it won't be too late as it was this time. We're going to lock down a lot sooner. I mean, you know, we learn from our mistakes, whether those are are human-made, man-made, or or natural. And in this case, it's a combination of both. Michael, I think we'll leave it there. But thank you very much for coming on, and best of luck with your new book. I'm going to order a copy now. I think Asia's new geopolitics. It's called. Thank you so much, Freddie. Anytime. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. 